Thank you, Royce. And thank you, musicians, all of you, for doing two services this morning and for being awake and bringing beautiful music to us. Thank you, Barry. It looks like we have a few visitors this morning because of our Heritage Weekend, and I just want to say to you, if this is your first time at Calamesa and you didn't come because we were having this celebration, we just want to say welcome, and it might feel like inside conversation this morning. And uh, we ask you to come back again and keep getting to know us. If today feels like you're, you feel a little like an outsider, it's not our intention. Those of you who've come just for the Adventist Heritage Weekend, would you mind just giving me a show of your hands so we can see how many of you, because it looks like a few faces. Welcome to Calamesa. You're in the, the, inside a great church. You could think of coming back next Sabbath. I am a fourth-generation Seventh-day Adventist Christian. And here's how you know I'll be an Adventist all of my life, because when someone asks you where you were born and the word sanitarium appears in the answer, <laughs> it's just a forever thing. And that's my disclaimer to you this morning and my invitation for you to listen, knowing that I'm an, a committed Adventist Christian. The prayer goes like this, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Thy kingdom come is a phrase that Adventists take seriously from our earliest days. The coming of God's kingdom organized and directed all of our priorities and our energies, theologically, socially, experientially. Exper uh, experientially, personally, collectively, the coming kingdom mattered. We called it millennial fever. And today, many people argue that it is precisely a lack of zeal for the coming kingdom that provides the problem in the Adventist church. Thy kingdom come, we understand, as Advent Christians, the people longing for the arrival of the kingdom. And I am not persuaded as a pastor, that it is helpful for us to continue asking why God hasn't come. I'm not sure it's the right question. I don't believe we'll have an answer on this earth. I am persuaded that it is wise to continue asking questions about this kingdom and about the ruler of this kingdom. And that's where I'd like to direct my energy I've heard it argued that in the Lord's Prayer, thy kingdom come could be interpreted a couple of ways. We say come and go, and we mean direction and location in our English language. But in the Greek, there's just one word. It could be coming or going. Thy kingdom come is less interested in the location of the speaker. It's more interested in movement. Thy kingdom could be coming or going. The point is, it's moving. So we could say, thy kingdom come, thy kingdom go out, meaning thy kingdom be in motion. It's another way for you to think about the phrase in the Lord's Prayer. Thy kingdom come, thy kingdom go out, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The God's agenda be in motion on earth. What's God's agenda? There is a summary in Luke chapter 4 that Jesus gives when he comes to the synagogue on a Sabbath day in his own hometown. He picks up a scroll, and the text says that he searched to find this passage in Isaiah 
Luke chapter 4, verse 18. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Luke goes on to say that Jesus rolled the scroll up, passed it back, and sat down, and the crowd stared at him. And Jesus stares back with the words, Today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Which I take to mean, go on, let the kingdom go out and come in. Let it be in motion among you, if you heard. Thy kingdom come, thy kingdom go, thy kingdom be in motion. Now last night, some of us gathered here in the sanctuary to look at pictures and to sing hymns. James Nix led us, and we looked at pictures of our early uh, Millerite leaders in particular. Every time I see these photos, I'm reminded of a conversation with my daughters that I've shared with our church here before when they first looked at these photos, and, and with a lot of concern, they asked me, Mommy, must you be ugly to be Adventist? Now I'll use the word homely. Must you be homely to be Adventist? You must not. You must care about the kingdom being in motion. That is what I learned from my early Advent leaders, people who cared about the kingdom being in motion. They modeled it well in the 1830s and 40s when they remained in their own churches, but they coalesced around a message William Miller was preaching in the soon coming of the kingdom of the Lord and the idea that the world, society, could be transformed. I believe that early, the earliest Adventists, who aren't even called Adventists, they're Millerites, I believe they're at their best when they're advocating for humans in this world. And it's inspiring to me personally when they look after the poor and the prisoner and the blind and the oppressed. These are the stories that I'm interested in this morning with you. Just a few little motion stories. And we'll follow one thread you'll, you'll see. I would like to hear about the stories of the abolitionist spirit in, among my early ancestors. It is true that they desi the desire to see black slaves set free in America was a priority for Millerite leaders, and it consumed some of them. The end of the world was not the only topic William Miller preached on. He had many topics, and one of them was uh, uh, the abolition of slavery. He was an outspoken friend of anti-slavery conversations, and often he spoke in sarcasm. Listen to this quote, and you'll catch. The Constitution and the Bill of Rights, he said, guaranteed liberty for white men. But it was not fortunate that God, but it was fortunate that God knew what a dilemma we white men would be placed in. Therefore, he made the black, so that we might beat them, bruise them, sell them, buy them not teach them, not give them Bibles, not preach to them, hang them, burn them, shoot them, and cut their throats if they should try to escape. That's his sarcasm, by the way. Two weeks later, two weeks after 1844 disappointment, when God did not come to the earth as the Millerites expected, a slave, a fugitive slave, arrived at William Miller's door with a letter he carried from a neighbor 15 miles uh, to the south, I believe, of the Miller farm, where the neighbor wrote, this man, this uh, slave, is being chased by his master and by the United States officers, and I knew of no one better than you, William Miller, to send this slave to. 
Please feed him and direct him to Canada and find safe havens along the way. So he did. Thy kingdom come, thy kingdom go out, thy kingdom in motion. Two weeks after the great disappointment that happened. We speak of Joshua Himes, and I am interested in the story of this media specialist for Father William. He's the one who printed the brochures and got the flyers out and arranged for the large, large tents for the huge meetings that Miller preached. But the abolitionist knew Himes as a radical reformer of all causes. Boston was the center for reform in our country here in America. And in Boston, Himes established one of the most respected meeting houses called the Chardon Street Chapel. It was spoken of as a building that was more respected and for which people had more affection than any other building in the city because it rocked with reform. Himes was criticized for being too progressive and too radical by some of his own Millerite followers, and Himes warned them that they'd only seen a drop in the bucket of what was to come in front of them. Joshua Himes, thy kingdom come, thy kingdom go out, thy kingdom be in motion. I'd want to know the stories about Charles Fitch, who wrote the pamphlet entitled, entitled Slave Holding, Weighed in the Balance of Truth. Slavery, he said, is worse than theft and robbery and murder and treason. Do your duty, deliver the spoils out of your hands to the oppressor. I want to know that Fitch made enemies along the way for taking this position. I want to know that there, were met there was a Methodist couple that left the Methodist church and joined the Millerites because the Methodist church wouldn't take a stand on this issue of slavery. I want to know that Millerites were arrested at the pulpit because they spoke on this topic. I want to know that they were ostracized and accused of mixing their Sabbath theology with their concern for free people just to get a few more converts in their own faith. I want to know that the Millerite homes were havens for reform planning meetings. I want to know this about my heritage. Thy kingdom come, thy kingdom go out. The kingdom is in motion among these early Millerites. I want to know that the Underground Railroad stopped at what would be my General Conference President's home. Don't you want to know that? I want to know that the earliest Adventists were advised by Ellen White to house any fugitive slaves that came their way, even if it meant breaking the law of the land because they responded to a higher law. I want to know that when the Emancipation Act is signed in 1863, freeing an estimated 4,000 slaves in our country, that the next 12 consecutive issues of the Adventist Review all carried a front-page story on the conversation of slavery in America, weighing it against the biblical understanding of slavery. That is three months in a row the Review carried a front-page article. Today, this week, we sit on the four-year anniversary of wartime, war in Iraq. So I surveyed the last four years of Adventist Review covers, wondering what I would see. I cannot find one cover of the Adventist Review in the last four years dedicated to the issue of war and peace, of the humanitarian fallout, of what of the fourth commandment and the sixth commandment I can't find one issue where the cover announces Adventists care about this topic. This is our most pressing international issue. would be interesting to know what the Bible teaches. But I can find inside the review pictures like this accompanied with an editorial that is somber and beautiful as it, as it uh, represents Adventist priority to nonviolent living. This little editorial piece was written 
four years ago on the eve of the war. Why isn't it on the cover? I want to know that Ellen White writes as passionately about slavery as just about any other topic she ever addresses. I want to know that she scolds the church for not being more proactive after emancipation happened. I want to know that our church sent a letter to the president, to Abraham Lincoln, urging him to make more decisive policies so free people in the world, free black people, would now have an option for living. I want to know that Ellen White says a window passed in this country. We did not take advantage of what was in front of us. I want to know that in 1891, this is almost 30 years after the Emancipation Act, she delivered an address called Our Duty, the Adventist Christian's Duty, to the colored people. And I want to know that when her son Edson picked up a copy of that sermon a couple of years later, crumpled on the floor, it pierced his heart. And while he was at a low point in his life, it turned him around and he decided to get a steamboat and to leave his business in Chicago and get a partner and take a steamboat called Morning Star down the Mississippi River and house it with a medical clinic and with a printing press and teach classes and Bible studies and do something for black free people in America who had no opportunities. I want to know that while he took that boat down the river, there were lynchings and protests where he stopped beatings most places, and I want to know that my church had a hard time supporting his effort, finances in particular. I I want to know that our Adventist publishing house had segregating dining rooms 60 years after the Emancipation Act in this country, and I even want to be reminded of the story of Lucy Byard, an Adventist church member who went to the Washington Sanitarium when she was sick and was admitted, and when it was discovered she was black, She was discharged and sent across town to the university hospital, and she died. I want to know these stories. I want to know that this is what caused the the leadership inside of the black Adventist churches to rise up and go to the general conference and say, this must stop. There is something better for us in this church. And that is why black conferences exist, even now in some parts of America. I have done mostly a brief abolition survey, but we could do the same at health reform. We could talk about temperance and substance abuse programs, education reform, women's rights. We could talk about the war, about war and peace. I would like to know about the group in in World War I, Adventist Germans, who did not want to fight when World War I was upon them. They wanted to remain faithful to the General Conference statement that the Bible teaches that it is contrary, it is not right to practice war, and we're opposed to carrying arms. Because it was World War I, the German Adventist leadership said, no, we're really going to allow all Adventists now to carry arms and to become combatants. And that was all right with 90% of German Adventists. But that 2% held out, and they told their leadership in Germany, no, you are going against the General Conference. We will not carry weapons. We don't believe in that. And that 2%, they were disfellowshipped. And there were attempts to reconcile two years later and another two years later, and it never worked. And the leadership in Germany said, we are sorry, we were wrong. We'll now give people a choice. You can carry weapons or you can, or you can leave them be. And this little group held out and said, no, that's not what we believe the Bible teaches. It was never their intention, but in 1922 birthed a new church, the Seventh-day Adventist Reform Movement, and their post office box is as close as Redlands. Their website is full of information online. 
That is all over non-combatancy issues in wartime. I want to know these motion stories as an Adventist Christians, Christian, the ones that resemble the kingdom and the ones that are struggling desperately to imitate the kingdom. It is true that by 1843, most Millerites had abandoned reform movements and put all their energy into the soon coming of the Lord. It is also true, however, that you can find threads of reform that trace all the way from there to current day. If you look, to be a millennialist, to be waiting for the kingdom to come, and to be a reformer are not opposing or competing values. They don't have to be. And all I have to do is look at my church to learn that lesson. We've been talking in the Calamasa Church the last few weeks about what it is we do as Adventist Christians to order our lives. What kind of practices do we choose so that we, we make ourselves available for God to do this transformational work and we sense we're connected to the vine and we're abiding and we're growing and something's happening in us. When I read Jesus' words from Luke chapter 4, I see a statement out of Jesus' mouth, a practice he engaged in. He set up patterns in his life that he would take care of the blind and the imprisoned and the poor and the oppressed. And one could say that this kind of just living, fighting for those people, is a practice we can engage in as a spiritual discipline. When Jesus said that in Luke 4, he's just echoing the language of the Old Testament prophets, what Royce read earlier. I despise your feasts and your services, God said. What does he want? He wants justice. Let justice roll on like a river. Righteousness like a never-failing stream. We continue to live in a world that needs justice. And I believe a world that's confused about what it looks like and confused about how to prioritize our needs. There was a campaign in Los Angeles County a few weeks ago sponsored by the Humane Society. They had a slogan, not one shall die or something like that, with these precious commercials on TV that make all the teenagers say, oh, let's please go get a pet. The whole family gets in the car and goes to the Humane Society. The slogan in the weekend campaign was, come adopt a pet so we don't have to euthanize any animals this weekend. It was an area-wide push in L.A. County. And that happened on the same weekend that the Los Angeles Times wrote the story of a man released to Skid Row from a hospital downtown because he couldn't provide a home address. And so he, he took his own sick body and jumped out of the van with his bag of clothes and his wounds that weren't even healed. They call it homeless dumping, and because Los Angeles County is, has the largest concentration of homeless in the western United States, it happens. At the same time, there is an article in the newspaper about what to do with Ruby. Ruby, she's getting older. She has about five more years to live. She spent the last 50 years of her life in one home only. She doesn't want to move. A lot of you can relate to that, right? You're settled in. You don't want to move. She's not like other aging ones, though. One of her friends in the San Francisco area is having a $40 million retirement location built for her, and Ruby is considering getting the same kind of home. Ruby is an elephant at the Los Angeles Zoo. And the question is, what do we do with the aging elephant? Oh, I guess we build them a $40 million habitat. I read these stories and think, how ridiculous would they sound to early Adventists? How ridiculous it sounds to me in a world full of need. 
In America, resources are not our problem. When you hear the word justice, and when I hear the word justice from Amos and from Jesus, I think we'll have to go beyond our traditional understanding of the word justice. When we say justice, like a philosopher or ethicist would say, we're thinking of giving someone what they deserve, what they have the right to have, just because they're human, not because they're special, just because they're alive. They should be treated with respect. When we say justice like a lawyer or a judge or a jury, we think of lady justice like the picture here with the weights and balances blindfolded with a sword by her side. She will be impartial. She'll be swayed neither by love nor prejudice. You'll get what the law lays down. When we say justice, we say the criminals will receive justice. That is not a biblical understanding of justice. That is not God's definition of justice. We're not talking about just what is fair by the law or what a person deserves just because they're human, like a food or job or being treated with respect. What makes justice different for Christians, for you and I, is the word love. It is what the Hebrews were asked to do in the Old Testament. More than orderly to society, more than just being decent to one another, care about what God cares about. That's what the prophets are saying. When they say, do justice, love mercy, walk humbly. Don't just do it so you won't get in trouble. Don't just do it to be decent. Do it because you actually cherish what God cherishes. That is just living. And it happens because we're in covenant with God. Loving what God loves, caring about what God cares about. Our world and the Adventist church needs just living. Did you agree? When we fed our seniors their Christmas meal at this church, the pastoral staff, the seniors gave us a gift in response, a thank you gift. It's this beautiful, um, I'll show you because I can't think of the word. It's this beautiful plaque you put on your desk and it spells out the word hope, only my H fell off. Uh, When they gave these to us, Dan, Isaac, Ken, they looked like this, right? I I don't know what I did. I was being careful. I just walked to my office and put it down on my desk and, and the H just tumbled off and I was left with ope. Ope. And I left it on my desk for a few days and thought, I have ope. And sometimes I look at my church and at my world and think, I really can't find the hope today. I just feel like we have ope. But if I keep looking, And I listen to the words of Jesus, and I watch my earliest models in Adventist Christianity. My, do I see hope. It is so evident. My ethics teacher taught it to us this way, as Adventist Christians, and he said, let that for which you hope become that for which you work. Not salvation now. That's what God takes care of. Let that for which you hope, a world where everyone is full and free and and everyone is treated well and the world is beautiful and the resources are plentiful and nature sings, let that for which you hope 
be that for which you work now. When we do that, we are authentically Adventist Christians. One concern or two I have about Adventist Christianity is our new historical situation. It's called the 21st century. And here is my fear as a church member. My fear is that we won't take the 21st century seriously, that we'll be tangled up as a church fighting about agendas that are 20 and 50 years old, that we'll be longing to go back to the good old days rather than take seriously where we live now and inspire renewal and reform here. I worry that we'll move through our world with benign neglect, that we won't have eyes that see and ears that hear. I worry that we'll substitute praying, we'll just hunker down and pray, we'll substitute that for just living. I worry that we'll reach a level of saiety almost. Be serious, we we live in Loma Linda, there's a lot of benevolent acts that happened here. I worry that we'll look around and see Loma Linda and all the missions and ADRA and the hospitals and food plants and radio stations and we'll say, yes, we do care, we do live justly in our world. I'm not really asking about the institution. I'm asking about you, and I'm asking about me. The question is very personal. Jesus says, and the prophets say, that I must ask myself, who am I oppressing today with the way I live? What actions in my life dominate other people? It could be as simple as parenting. Do you parent or grandparent with dominance because you're bigger? Because you pay the bills? The prophets and Jesus ask us to reflect on who are we oppressing? Where is it that I have a position and stature in the world, and where do I lord that over someone? Where do I ever say, I was here first, you go? Where am I oppressing? The texts ask me to ask these questions. And finally, I worry about the next generation of Adventist Christians. Many of them, and myself included, are worried about, are concerned about how you mix a life of faith and political action out in the world, that somehow we've come to this segregated living. Our faith must be private, and the public world is the public square, and we really try not to dabble too much out there. And I just think it would be wise for us to pause as a church and say, when the next generations emerge with their own radical ideas of how they have intertwined their private faith and their public responsibilities, we as a church better not say, oh, but the denomination just doesn't do that. Because we did do that, didn't we? The question is, what happened? To live in hope means we'll wrestle with this. It's what Jesus asks, and it's what the church does together. We're going to close with prayer this morning, Dan and Mike and myself, and we'll all join our voices at one point here. Would you kneel?
Father, as we follow you, as we, your children, try to walk as you would have us walk and to be like you, you've called us to look forward to a time when you'll come again. And those of us who are looking forward to that event live hoping that it will be soon, where we can all go home to the land that you've promised, to the mansions in glory, to where all of your children will be at peace and at one with each other. And as we live our lives now in that expectation, hoping for that day when you will come, help our lives to be representative of your kingdom. Help our lives to be able to be a part of that kingdom to those around us, to your other children. So often when we get used to seeing stories on TV and reading headlines about the suffering, about injustice in the world, we build up an armor so that they no longer affect us. Help us not to be annoyed by these things, but to be touched, to remember that you are acting through us in this world, that your kingdom is coming, and that we are living in the hope of a better world and bringing that better world to those of our brothers and sisters who live around us now. Help us to do that in all that we do, with our resources, with our votes, and with our day-to-day -day living so that we can be more like you. Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, we pray that the peace of your kingdom will be made real right now. And we ask that that peace will begin with each one of us. Father, may we find peace with you, first of all. May we lay down our warring hearts and all the things that resist and resent you and just open ourselves to the peace of you. And Father, may that peace spill over into our relationships, our most intimate friendships, those with our spouses, with our children and our parents, our brothers and sisters and our families, Father. Please turn the hearts of the parents towards the children and the children towards the parents. May there be peace where there was conflict, Father. And in our congregation and in our friendships, Lord, I just pray that if there's anyone here right now who's laying their gift, so to speak, before the altar and, and realize that there's something that someone might have against them, that we would have the courage to go and make it right now, today, Father, because you've called us to that level of peacemaking with our brothers and sisters. <laughs> and Father, beyond our congregation, there's so much strife. I pray that this church would be a model of peace um, in, the, in how we treat each other and how we treat other denominations and other faiths even, and, and the respect that we give those who are different from us. Um, May that inspire, Lord, the rest of the world towards peace, towards those who are different. And uh, I have a special place in my heart for those on the streets who are fighting others because of their race or because of their gang affiliation or because of where they live, that they would find some way to find peace. And I just pray that your spirit would make headway on the streets, Lord, of San Bernardino and of every other neighborhood where there is strife. And that as a nation, Father, just help us uh, to know how to sow peace in our world so that this country can be a light. And I, I just know that's such a complicated thing, Father, but I ask for your grace for our leaders and for each one of us as citizens with our voices and our votes and our money and our spending. May we, may we sow peace with all that we do. And we just ask for your spirit to guide us in that. In Jesus' name, amen.
God, thank you for hearing these prayers. We join our voices together now. We pray that prayer Jesus taught us to pray. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. <laughs>